Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new episode of Great Moments in Weed History. I am extremely stoked. Uh, did the kids still say stoked? Uh, I guess hit me up in the DMs and let me know, but I am excited. I am thrilled. I am stoked to be with you as always, and especially this weed, because we are in for a fascinating and very fun conversation with a true expert on the history and culture of cannabis in the Middle East. And I've got to say, this weed's episode is truly among the most enlightening conversations we've ever had on this podcast. I personally learned so much from our guests and maybe even made a new friend. You know, there's an old saying, the real Acapulco gold is the friends we made along the way. If you're looking for a companion piece to this weed's episode when you're done and you want to dive more into global cannabis and understand how this plant has been shaping culture and history around the world, I would suggest following up with our episode about an organization called the Indian Land Race Exchange, which right as we speak is extremely busy throughout India, Southeast Asia, and the entire Middle East working to preserve the traditional cannabis strains from these regions. One of the biggest thrills of hosting this podcast is not only getting to share cannabis conversations with so many different fascinating people, and of course, getting you to listen in and learn with us and get high on history with us. It's checking the podcast download numbers and seeing that this show is reaching a truly global audience, including places like the Middle East. Hi to our friends there. Hello to our friends in Europe, in Asia, South America. I don't know that we've had anybody download the show in Antarctica, but if you're up there getting lit, please drop a line because that's a great moment in weed history all of its own. But my larger point is, you know, the history of cannabis goes back thousands of years. And uh, in the end, it's all about this plant that makes us feel good, that heals our bodies and our minds and our souls, and that despite all of the attempts to prohibit and eradicate it, continues to thrive on this planet Earth and provide a way to connect for people from very, very different walks of life. Um, that's really what Great Moments in Weed History is all about. That's why I hope you are tuning in and this Weeds episode will certainly deliver. But before I introduce this Weeds guest, I want to read you all a poem. Now, don't worry, it's a very, very short poem. Roses are red, kush plants are green. <laughs> no, seriously, uh, the verse I'd like to share was written by Basho, a Japanese poet from the 17th century. I don't know if he was uh, lit when he wrote this poem, but you can certainly listen to our episode about the long history of cannabis in Japan and decide for yourself. But Basho's poem is very appropriate for this Weeds episode, and it goes a little something like this. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Now that short poem is actually more of what's known as a koan, which is defined as 
a paradoxical anecdote, which was the name of my punk band in college, were the paradoxical anecdotes, one, two, three, four, uh, <laughs> or a riddle, which is used in the tradition of Zen Buddhism to demonstrate the inadequacy of logical reasoning and to provoke enlightenment. So when Basho says spring comes and the grass grows by itself, well, this week is the beginning of spring, but I can definitely uh, hear a lot of, you know, this is not a call-in show, but the call-in lines are lighting up right now from our many, many, many listeners who are cannabis growers, who listen to and love this podcast, and who are saying, hey, I actually strongly disagree with this guy, Basho, uh, because it's very, very difficult, in fact, to grow craft quality cannabis or grass, if you will, especially at scale. This stuff does not grow by itself, whatever this poet from the 17th century would like you to believe. Much respect and love to all our cannabis cultivators out there doing just that. I love to hear from people who say they listen to this program while they're trimming weed or while they're doing their planting or while they're right now hopefully popping some seeds and getting ready to grow. If you are thinking about growing your own grass, maybe even for the first time, now, this time of year, is when you need to get started. So please consider that, particularly if it's legal to do so where you live and you have some room outdoors and you've never grown weed before and you love weed enough to listen to this show, I'm going to say you've got to do it. All you need is some good seeds, a nice clone, some dirt, some water, some sunshine, and I'm going to give you two solid reasons to get started today. One is, as you've heard on this podcast many times before, the best, finest, most beautiful cannabis on the planet Earth is the cannabis that you grow yourself. Not just for the woo-woo, hippie reasons, but also for the practical reasons that you can choose the exact kind of cannabis you want to grow. You can give it all the tender, loving care it needs and deserves. You can harvest it at its precise moment of peak potency. You can trim it with the delicacy that it deserves, and you can Put it right in a jar without it having to go on a truck and get inspected by the government and sit in a storage facility and go to a distributor and degrade in a hot warehouse and then get stacked into little jars and sit on a shelf. I'm telling you, just like the tomatoes you grow in your backyard are the juiciest and most delicious you're going to have that year. The same goes for cannabis. And reason number two that springtime should make you think it's time to grow some weed is that, let's just be honest, legal weed costs way, way, way too much for a plant that is rightfully known as weed because of its incredible life force. And you know, if you're paying for it at the store and it, you're getting sticker shock and you're looking at how much of that money is going to the government and you maybe don't feel so great about what the government's doing with that tax money, well, let's cut out the middle persons uh, and let's as they say, and listen to me carefully, over 
grow the government, okay? I don't want to get on any watch list. I didn't say throw. I said grow. You know, one person who uh, has the legal right to grow six plants in their backyard with ease and not much expense can produce an incredible amount of cannabis that will make you a very popular person in your stoner circle because you'll be able to just simply give away the best possible cannabis in the world to your friends, to anybody you know who might be in medicinal need. You know, you can trade it for somebody's homegrown zucchini or, or, or whatever. And if you're wondering how to get started, just stay tuned to Great Moments in Weed History, or better yet, subscribe to this podcast because we're going to have an episode coming at you very soon that's going to tell you everything you need to know to get started growing weed with a true, true expert and a longtime friend of this podcast. This podcast, of course, is also 100% homegrown and independent, and we do need your help to stay that way, and the best way to support great moments in weed history is to throw in on this shit on Patreon. All you have to do is go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, and that's where you can sign up for our Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help spread the word about weed. You can contribute directly to our ongoing project, to preserve the true outlaw history of cannabis, and you can get some really cool bonuses. First of all, at any level of support, you will get access to the video version of this podcast. Right now, you'd be watching me hold up this nice, sweet, homegrown joint shared with me by a supporter of this podcast who was inspired by this podcast last year to grow weed for the first time, and now she is smoking the best weed in the world and has a little extra to share with yours truly. You can also put five on it, and that will really help us cover all of the costs involved in creating this independent show. And for a little more, you can get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot, properly. I will sign it. I will personally inscribe it to you. I will mail it to your door. And then, you know, you'll know you're not smoking weed wrong. But, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot more into the book than that. It's sort of a fun title. Anyway, big picture, we are trying to get to 420 supporters on Patreon by 420 this year. That is the level of support that will make this a sustainable effort that will uh, bring in enough green energy to cover all of the time and effort that goes into conceiving these episodes, to lining up our guests, to researching each story, recording the interviews, editing it all down. And I do uh, take pride in being pretty painstaking with the edits so you don't have to listen to a bunch of mouth noises, and you don't have to listen to the tangent of a tangent of a tangent that doesn't always go somewhere. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any episodes, and it really helps us reach other people. And of course, what we need more than anything is word of mouth, or I'm going to call it first time use, weed of mouth. Uh, We need you to tell your friends and your fellow 
cannabis enthusiasts to check out great moments in weed history. You can text them a link to the podcast. You can bring it up at your next smoke session and help us get to 420 supporters here on Patreon. And it is all happening at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. Okay, now let's get into this weeds episode with our guest, Dr. Mazier Yavi. He is the director of the Center for Persian and Iranian Studies at the University of Exeter's Institute for Islamic and Arabic Studies. I mean, that is quite a pedigree. I am uh, just just a guy with a microphone and some weed. So uh, the disparity of uh, who's a real historian and, and who just loves weed enough uh, to try to learn all about it is 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 pretty deep on this episode, but uh, as I said, cannabis really bridges those divides, not just of culture and distance, but of uh, academic credentials, and we had a, a really fun conversation that you're about to be a part of. Mazier is also, and this is the reason that I reached out to him, he is the author of a fascinating new book called We Smoke Flowers on being high in post-revolutionary Iran. Now, I was first drawn to this book simply by the title because we typically think of the Middle East as the cradle of hashish production and culture going back many centuries. So, you know, when I saw We Smoke Flowers in the title, uh, that really struck a chord and really got me curious. Now, as you're about to hear in this conversation with Maziar, he chose that title very specifically because in Iran right now, there is a whole scene of people who are uh, smoking the cannabis flower, just as I've got the cannabis flower rolled up in this joint. We're going to find out the reason for the, all this flower smoking uh, coming into vogue there. But we are also going to go all the way back and tell a story about the history of cannabis and hashish in Iran and throughout the Middle East. And it's a story that dates back to the plant's earliest spiritual uses on through the age of Islam. And then we, of course, uh, landed on modern day cannabis culture in Iran and throughout the Middle East. It is a wide ranging discussion. It is uh, refreshing to talk with somebody who knows so much about cannabis culture coming at it from a completely different perspective. And I gotta really say, you know, I'm hoping that one day uh, Maziar and I will get to go on the grand cannabis and hashish adventure that we uh, uh, joke a bit about taking in this episode. But for right now, it is time for all of us to get lit. As I showed you earlier, I've got this beautiful homegrown cannabis shared with me by a supporter of Great Moments in Weed History on Patreon. I'm ready to spark it up and take a journey to a, a distant land, distant times with you and our guest. But of course, if you, dear listener, are all in on learning about the history of cannabis and hashish in the Middle East, and you cannot wait 
to meet our guest, Maziar, and you are fascinated by the idea of people smoking flowers in Iran right now the same way I'm about to do, but you don't have a joint ready to go or any other way to get lit, and you want to be on the same wavelength of everyone else listening to this program, well, no worries. As always, very, 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 very easy fix. All you have to do, and you can say it with me if you listen to this show a lot, is hit pause. And then you can use that time at your leisure to roll a joint, or to split a blunt, or to pack a bong, or to endabulate a dab. And then when you're nicely toasted, all you got to do is hit unpause. And I promise you that as always, when you're ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. Maziar, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. I am extremely excited to have this discussion with you after reading your book. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here and hopefully we'll have an enthusiastic discussion about this. Absolutely. Well, I have to start by saying we smoke flowers that reached out to me right away. We often think of that part of the world, Iran and the Middle East, as a hashish culture, which is certainly, I think, where this discussion will begin. Can you start by helping us understand the history of cannabis in in that part of the world? Absolutely, yeah. We spoke flowers. Uh, I, I, I think uh, you're really right, very much so. You know, like if you look at the history of cannabis uh, in Iran and in sort of this Western and Central Asian region, the product that has been more consumed throughout history uh, has been hashish. But I may surprise you in saying that uh, going back to more ancient times, you know, uh, to the sort of very early sources that we have about cannabis or references to cannabis. It was the flower again and the leaves that were used in uh, in ritual practices. And uh, in the case of Iran in particular, this goes back to the sort of pre-Islamic period, uh, particularly in uh, and ritual uses among Zoroastrians. Zoroastrianism is uh, a religion that dates back more than 3,000 years and has reference to the prophet Zaratustra or Zoroastro, which in Persian is Zavtusht, the one of Nietzsche. Uh, also sprach Zaratustra. Sort of in Zoroastrian rituals, there is a, a cannabis occupied a sort of ambivalent place. In a way, it was condemned because of its intoxication, uh, intoxicating effects, but it was also a plant that could take you to a higher ecstatic state that could put you in relation to otherworldly, or if you want, di- divine angelic and divine sort of essences. We are talking about snippets of references in so very ancient sources. So, of course, we cannot really come up with a descriptive account of what happened or not. 
But it seems that, you know, the, the plant, if you want to a certain extent, unadulterated form in its actual flowery form was, uh, was already known to be used prior the sort of emergence uh, of uh, hashish culture, which is uh, the reason why we know, we, we know the Middle East, if you want, um, in terms of you know, consumption nowadays. I think that's fascinating because that sort of contrasting view of cannabis remains with us today. The idea that there's been the harshest prohibitions against this seemingly beneficial plant. And there's always been a, a, a celebration of this plant back even to pre-Islamic times in the region. Do you know how it would be consumed, the flowers? Are we talking about edible preparations? How... What what do we know about the use at that time? So you mean the ancient kind of ritual use? Yeah. Uh, it uh, from the, from the little we know, uh, it seems that uh, it was used in in mixtures and sort of with other substances and herbs and and and, and spices and taken for either so called ritual uses in 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 religious uh, sort of performances. Or according to a, a more or less of a legend, if you want, in uh, in the most important uh, epic poem of Persian language uh, uh, literature, which is the Shahnameh, the Book of the Kings, it was administrated, was given uh, in, during Caesarian uh, practices for women giving birth, which take us, of course, to you know many connections with uh, today's practices of uh, of of, uh, of cannabis as a medicine. So, so yeah, this is the little we know about uh, ancient practices, uh, and of course, I mean there are variants to that too. I mean later, you know, with the start of the Islamic period, so we are talking about the seventh century of the Common Era. We are, of course, in a different sort of civilizational period, you know. So Zoroastrianism and other ancient religions are really losing their momentum. And there is uh, the rise of Islam as the main, main cultural, uh, or at least as, as the main religious movement throughout Western Central Asia and, and Northern Africa. But what we see is perhaps some reinterpretation of ancient practices in the sciences of cannabis. Uh, and here you see physicians such as, you know, the very famous Avicenna, Ibn Sina, so one of the sort of founders, if you want, of medis medical knowledge uh, worldwide in his famous uh, book, The Canon of Medicine. He refers to cannabis in, in the form of the herb and the flower, as well as in the form of the residue for different purposes and often mixed with other spices and 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 so on and so forth and you know that that, that the plant is 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 prescribed to patients for problems from uh, you know sort of if you want facetious problems such as aerophagy if you have air in your stomach to headache to dandruff and many other issues. It's thought about in a complex way. So we are talking about the sort of medical practice in cannabis use, but there is also the religious practice in cannabis use. And there's also the sort of, you know, more mundane, if you want, that is, of course, harder to find when you look at the sources because we don't have sources describing everyday life. But it's obvious at this stage that if, the, the, if cannabis is widely available, of course, it grows naturally in this part of the world. It is also very likely that, you know, there is a more widespread, perhaps not systematic, but existing use. 
Yeah, I, I have to imagine by the time you're using it for dandruff, you're using it to get high. <laughs> Clearly. And I think that um, shows a sophistication of the understanding of the medicinal uses of the plant to say flower preparations may be most helpful for these conditions while concentrations or hashish-like preparations or preparations with other medicinal plants uh, are, are recommended for these kinds of uh, conditions. What were the uh, prescribed or understood spiritual uses and practices like uh, at the beginning of the Islamic period and, and how does that change or evolve over time? We are talking about a span of time that is, you know, centuries. So the place of cannabis changes uh, dramatically with the Mongol invasion of Iran. It is following the 12th and 13th century that we start seeing references to common and widespread consumption of cannabis beyond medical practice and beyond, you know, sort of ad hoc prescription uh, for people. And, and it's taken up mostly uh, by mystical groups or people pursuing heterodox forms of uh, spiritual pursuit. And we have a number of groups, in, in, especially in Iran, uh, that uh, were known or were accused of or criticized for their cannabis use. We, we, we have also some very funny sources in poetry, you know, in which cannabis is a source of satirical commentary and this kind of stuff. Generally, in historical material, the association is with mysticism. And mysticism is a very wide term that defines uh, all those groups and individuals that pursue a form of spiritual uh, kind of love, in a sense, that is not uh, the orthodox uh, scriptural understanding of islamic knowledge and history as we you know as it's been kind of uh, organized by jurists and, and lawmakers so yeah i mean perhaps uh, the, the sort of uh, story slash history that most of the people listening now uh, are familiar with is that of the hashishiin or the assassins of course that's an apocryphal story completely made up and debunked by historians but it has made quite a long journey uh, up to the present uh, and and if, just i'll give it perhaps if you want a couple of uh, descriptive notes about it uh, if you don't mind the story of the assassins or the hashishiin was popularized by a french orientalist in the early 19th century uh, when looking for uh, the origin of the word assassins. And he traced the etymology, so the origin of the word, uh, back to the Arabic word hashishin, which meant uh, those who smoke hashish, cannabis. Hashish in Arabic means herb, the herb, like in the very generic sense. Of course, that's not true. That's, uh, you know, that doesn't derive from that. Uh, it, there's no association between the violence of the assassins and the smoking of hashish. That's a sort of made-up etymology for the political purpose. But what is more interesting is that the story of hashish being used among a heterodox political group, political religious group, uh, is actually... Potentially true or not, we don't know, but uh, it, the fact that it was used to accuse this political group shows us that there was a contentious understanding of cannabis 
in 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 13th century you know uh, period particularly in Iran that's located in northwestern Iran um, in the city of in the city of Alamut this group was a spiritual order that uh, defied the political authority of the caliphate at the time located in uh, in Damascus or Baghdad in Baghdad and uh, and intervened by methods of political assassination of the leaders of the caliphate there was there were tension between these two groups and therefore the sort of word that circulated was that these people were high on hashish and that is the purpose, that is the rationale behind their acts and their capacity to follow orders without questioning and sort of that you know that kind of takes us to a long journey up to the present and the idea of you know cannabis inebriating the mind in such a way that uh, you know, you, you do things that you don't want, which is actually not particularly true, I would say. On the contrary, you, you kind of think very carefully often uh, when you when you are high. <laughs> like, I would say you're more likely to not do things you don't want to do. And and maybe that's uh, what the authorities are, are actually concerned about. Concerned about. Yeah, I, I would say I agree with you. So, yeah. But, you know, I think what... Because, of course, you know, we, we, we cannot travel in time and know exactly what happened. But, you know, these were the kind of stories that circulated at the time. There is a long journey from that to the present, of course. Absolutely. And, and for listeners of our podcast, uh, you can go back to our episode about Harry J. Anslinger, the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who in the 1930s pushed forward the first federal prohibition of cannabis in the United States. And he references directly and extensively this, as you say, made-up story about the so-called Hashashishans as justification for uh, outlawing the cannabis plant in the United States and ultimately pushing for uh, its prohibition around the world later through the United Nations, all based on this story. So this is a direct through line to our modern prohibition state in the U.S. and around the world. What's the first account of not just sort of a stigmatizing or um, these types of stories meant to disparage another culture or another sect with an actual codified prohibition of the plant or its use in that part of the world, uh, in the Islamic world. I can give you different responses. Uh, let me let me explain. Throughout the sort of early modern period from the 13th century up to the 19th century, cannabis was a contentious substance and different rulers undertook different decrees towards it. So we have periods of time in which cannabis was forbidden and people who used it were punished, even very severely. It's a different story to define specific decrees against cannabis and intoxication and compare these decrees to actual prohibitions understood in the modern term. Because the means of enforcement of the, of the prohibition uh, were different, of course, you know, and there was no systematic undertaking, to, you know, to punish and collect and put in prison people who, who used cannabis or other substances. In a way, the idea of prohibition, of course, is not a modern idea. It's something that existed, you know, governments and rulers were known to kind of take action against whatever 
at you know in different times of uh, of, of human history. But the first modern prohibition that is kind of enshrined in law and enforced through the policing system as well as through the prison and carceral system actually occurs in Egypt uh, in the mid-19th uh, century. And now when I say mid-19th century, that means actually that the first cannabis prohibition worldwide took place in Egypt. Not, not in Europe, not in the U.S. Following the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt in early 19th century, French soldiers discover hashish. Initially, that's not a problem for the military kind of uh, the French military rules occupying Egypt. But then, with time, they see that, of course, that kind of impinges upon uh, upon discipline, upon following orders, and things like that. And, and, and that starts with the prohibition of uh, the, the French uh, upon the soldiers, which later is taken up by Egyptian rulers and applied to the whole of the population. And we should re- kind of re- remember that Egypt at the time was probably one of the countries with the largest sort of cannabis-consuming population. The, the, the prohibition is quite uh, drastic and has, has quite a strong effect. Of course, it doesn't have the effect of uprooting cannabis from Egypt, which, of course, doesn't happen with prohibitions. In terms of Iran, I mean, as I said, we're speaking about a very large part of the world that, you know, goes from Morocco to Afghanistan. So I cannot really speak of each single individual case. But in terms of Iran, it's, it's slightly more complicated because in terms of religious ruling, cannabis was already seen throughout the early modern and modern period as something unwanted and something that should be forbidden. But that it's not really taken up in terms of legal orders and frameworks uh, in a systematic way. Uh, it is only with the beginning of the 20th century and with the sort of international regulatory regime on opium and later on cannabis that the Iranian state early on, at the same time that these undertakings happen also in Europe and North America, that it introduces cannabis prohibition. It's never really enforced throughout uh, the first part of the 20th century. And it then it starts being enforced uh, in a sort of uh, ad hoc way against people who are considered as problematic in terms of social social uh, inclination, political inclination, uh, under the monarchy of uh, the Pahlavis. So in the 50s and 60s, and with the rise of hippie traveling towards Afghanistan and passing through Iran, that becomes even more exposed. And therefore, you know, they are like stronger, and, you know, sort of measures. But cannabis itself really doesn't, doesn't get to the heart of the problem when it comes to prohibition. You know, governments have been uh, reluctant and also probably uninterested in enforcing strict uh, prohibitions on cannabis because concerns have been uh, focused on other things such as opium and mostly heroin and methamphetamine as of recently. So, so you know, we have also to keep that in mind. We don't have a system such as that in North America, particularly in the United States, in which cannabis is prohibited and cannabis prohibition is used to target specific social groups uh, in order to, you know, sort of disenfranchise them from the political movements of the time. So we don't have that kind of uh, process in, in, in Iran, at least. Uh, and, and of course, that is at the heart of prohibition in the United States was as a sort of proxy war uh, of racism and uh, 
you know, social control against groups. And of course, these prohibitions are not based in science or social reason. And and I think what uh, is a great tell of that is the two sort of charges against cannabis we've discussed so far are completely contradictory. In the Hashishan model, it's uh, uh, going to make you an un- questioning follower of military leaders to the point of committing political assassination to the extent that you will die in the process willingly. Or in Egypt, it's going to make you a terrible soldier. And that's the reason that it has to be outlawed. Absolutely. Uh, two completely, you know, at odds charges against it. And that just sort of shows that there are always these other factors at play when we talk about it. What Before we move to the post-revolutionary period in Iran and really the subject of your, of your book, what can you tell us about the economics of cannabis and hashish leading up to that? Where and how is it being grown commercially? What sort of trade routes existed to uh, bring it to market? Was it sold alongside... Uh, spices and other uh, commercial products of the time or was it more of an underground so so you know the main producers of cannabis in the past 200 years were greece lebanon of course india and nepal in particular but in the case of iran and, and afghanistan of course uh, but it grows naturally in Iran as well. So we cannot really think of a specific trade of cannabis or, you know, in a systematic way or something that is sort of exported transnationally with the, with the customer population, for instance, in the case of Iran, uh, because people had access to it locally at any time up to recently. So if this happened like recently and still happens somehow now, people will greet each other especially if they knew that the sort of other person had an interest in cannabis by giving bags of, sort of raw cannabis, you know, like that grows in the garden. So you just collect it, just give it to them. Uh, and like large quantities, you know, like, it's, 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 you know, as someone who lives in Europe and, you know, have seen these scenes in first person, I was shocked. It's something that in Europe would cost you perhaps thousands, you know, thousands of euros for just giving like that. Uh, uh, which means, and this is happening, you know, as recently, if not in the present, you could imagine in the past, this wasn't really a problem. So like the question of trade is, is slightly different. Of course, for instance, in the case of Egypt, where cannabis doesn't easily grow because of the location, geographical location, it was imported from Greece. And Greece was a very large, large producer of cannabis uh, for the best part of the 20th century and before. And the same for Lebanon, uh, which uh, produced a lot of cannabis uh, historically in the Beka Valley, uh, and, and, and particularly even more so from the 60s onwards, when you have a pickup in interest, in international interest in cannabis. And Afghanistan, of course, where, you know, cannabis grows, of course, naturally, but also historically in the modern period in the last hundred years has been cultivated. Uh, and even more so, you know, with, with international interest, international interest being, you know, North Americans and European cannabis culture emerging, uh, as opposed to the local cannabis culture, which was mostly unprofitable. You know, we cannot really identify historically an economic profitable framework for cannabis 
in the region for local consumers that you know which is of course the case for cannabis in general if cannabis wasn't marketized and was free because it's an it's a relatively easy plant to grow and it's its yield is quite large the fact that cannabis is profitable is mostly due to prohibition <laughs> as a substance you know like so so and, and of course to the fact that you know people who live in your urban areas for instance wouldn't have access to it because they cannot cultivate it uh, but, you know, for, for societies that were mostly rural or had access to rural land easily, the question of cannabis as a profitable commodity is nonsense. So, uh, so that's why, you know, I am sort of turning your question upside down to just give it a sense and perspective that economic uh, trade around cannabis wasn't a big deal. And that, that brings us to sort of the period just prior to the uh, revolution in, in Iran, uh, where you do have travelers uh, from the United States, North America, and Europe starting to uh, visit increasingly what was called the Hippie Trail, which extended through that large region that you just described, many couldn't help but notice the sort of non-commodification type availability of cannabis and hashish versus the hyper-capitalized because the prohibitions were already so firmly in place in the countries they had come from, and that began to create a trade route. How did that affect the perception? You know, we've heard that story a lot uh, on this podcast and, and in the West from the perspective of those travelers. Uh, but how did it affect cannabis and hashish culture uh, from the people in those regions who had been, you know, having those traditional spiritual and simply cultural uses of the plant? Absolutely. No, it's an exciting way of seeing it. And of course, you know, all, all travels are people going to places, but also the places kind of, you know, kind of take possession of those who come in, in one way or the other. So I can respond to this in a partial way, of course, because uh, we still have uh, not come up with a proper systematic historical review of these experiences. But they, they are, you know, we have glimpses and, you know, so some images and records of, of the interaction and what this interaction left. Uh, in the locals. Uh, I'll speak about the case of Iran, which is the one I know best about this subject. So in the 60s, you have a large population of Iranians going abroad to study and making friends, of course, in Europe, North America, and coming back often with them. And some of those people who come back to Iran, of course, also are interested in the so-called hippie trail because they engage in the local sort of uh, drug culture, if you want to call it so. And, and they travel eastwards from Af to Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, and up to Thailand, really. What happens to the locals is that, of course, there's a very rich and probably much more sophisticated culture of using cannabis in, in Iran than it used to be in, in, in Europe because it's been there for so long and it's been sort of an embedded part of the ritual and spiritual life as well as medical practice for quite a long time. But some of the sort of more mundane type of views which come from North America or from you know, sort of Northern Europe uh, weren't 
integrated or you know sort of imitated by locals you know like so you have stories about using uh you know uh, so th- it's funny because of course most of the cannabis culture in Europe was also inspired from oriental so-called oriental use but then it's reinterpreted in Europe and then taken back so for instance Iranians wouldn't use bongs Iranians would smoke it in longer pipes or they would eat it or they would uh empty a cigarette and fill it fill it with cannabis or mixing the tobacco with uh, uh, with hashish and then fill it the fill the cigarette back you know sort of this kind of ways but the bong kind of made it back to Iran for the for the sort of North American connection which you know took it from from India of course because that's there was not you know and and uh, so you have this kind of stuff you know this kind of micro stories about interaction but I guess what was uh, more telling is is the fact that other drugs kind of travel to Iran such as LSE LSD, sorry, LSD is the university, LSD, which of course that made it interesting. It's not part of, of course, your podcast topic, but you know, in a way it's part of a cultural milieu in which, in which cannabis users in Iran, for instance, came to know, uh, you know, another substance that was connected to the cultural milieu of cannabis users, not, not always, but sometimes, of course, in, 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 in the West. There is also the fact that some Iranians, because of their European uh, partners being interested in the hippie trail, went through the hippie trail. So, whereas before they would be interested mostly in traveling westward, going to Europe and North America and see how the world looked on that side, they got interested in the East. And, and they sort of traveled with them. Of course, the experience of that might have been very different from someone who is, uh, who is a neighbor of course, to this region, but of course, a neighbor that is also quite different in terms of cultural practices and historical background. So, you know, you have kind of these stories. It's very interesting. I mean, actually, it would be a perfect topic for oral history, you know, interview set of interviews in which you see how these people kind of went through it. Yes, we will. Let's undertake that together. We'll talk after <laughs> the podcast, but uh, you and I hop in the car. I would uh, I would love that would be cool for that. <laughs> And so now let's talk about uh, when we say post-revolutionary Iran, you're referring in in the title of this to the Islamic Revolution in 1979. What made you on a personal level interested in that, you know, more current period of cannabis culture in Iran? And um, what do we see happening there now? Of course, there are different reasons for which I'm interested in the subject. I mean, the more, uh, the most, uh, I would say, perhaps futile uh, reason is the fact that, as you've noticed, there is very little written about uh, cannabis histories uh, in, in, in West Asia, North Africa, Central Asia. And this is very odd because uh, it's a very ancient history and very rooted in, in everyday cultures. So, so when I came to the topic of cannabis, and of course I'm someone who's been interested in cannabis and other drugs throughout my life, so of course it was a sort of natural inclination also to, to kind of integrate it in my more intellectual interests. And, and so when I decided to work on sort of history of drugs more generally, I said, well, there's a huge, huge gap to, to be filled. And it's a gap that is important both for the academic sort of side of things in which, you know, most historians don't know what happens in this part of the world, but also because we are kind of losing this very important uh, popular history of substances 
because with people dying and sort of forgetting, we'll lose a big part of our modern history of substances and intoxication and all that it sort of surrounded them. And uh, that's, that's really a big loss. The other is, is if you want, is a bit more political, is that I'm, I'm interested in what happens when we look at health through the, the, the prism of politics. So we try to understand health in the broadest sense of the term, well-being, you know, access to uh, medication, but also just uh, reclaiming a state of being that we consider healthy and they consider, don't consider healthy. When we look at this through the prism of politics, and of course, I mean, when, 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 you, when you're interested in such subject, the question of drugs becomes central immediately because uh, it's one of those cases in which in the modern era, been, the, the reason why we live in sort of uh, prohibitionist times is not because of some scientific, as you said, uh, reason or some medical discovery. It's uh, almost exclusively due to political reasoning. In the case of Iran and the post-revolutionary period, it's an extremely interesting period to study drugs in general and cannabis because you have, a, you have an Islamic revolution in 1979. That's a revolution which basically overturns the modes of living and of making politics from day to night, overnight. <laughs> in a matter of a very short period of time, you, things change completely. And they change... Uh, uh, Dramatically, both at a sort of structural level, the state changes its sort of outlook and the way it's governed, but also in the everyday occurrences of people. You know, how do you live in the public space? How do you interact with the other sex? How do you see yourself in the future? Where do you see your relationships with other countries, traveling and so on and so forth? For a country like Iran, where the history of drugs has been deeply rooted, uh, and very ancient and continues. Having a, a moral order in forming politics uh, meant a lot, meant that, you know, sort of stricter prohibitionist regimes and sort of moralistic interventions became the rule. But that kind of coincided, and this is why I think the subject I'm working on is really interesting, I'm kind of selling it to the people, is that it lives in an ambivalent space in which you have that kind of uh, authoritarian, religiously zealot, uh, zealous order, but you also have a large-scale kind of uh, tolerant approach towards intoxication. And so making sense of this is my job, like basically. <laughs> it's like a, and, and, and what I come up with is, is, you know, that in part that chapter in which I show that, of course, there are different concerns with regard to public health risk in, in seeing drugs, but also a certain cultural acceptance of cannabis that is so widespread that is actually impossible to intervene politically to restrict it or punish people for using cannabis. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and I, I, I appreciate you bringing all of this to light with, with you know, the uh, rigor of an academic, but also somebody who, uh, at least, shall I say, has a genuine and deep interest in this subject and not looking to just sort of scrape the surface of it. Because one thing that uh, occurs to me in, in, in tracing this history as much as, as we can on this show all over the world, no matter how severe the prohibition there are always people who are going to rally 
with this plant and try to subvert those prohibitions. And I think in part because of its incredible medicinal properties that are long understood uh, in folk medicine and plant medicine because of its spiritual use is so central. You know, I often say uh, if the United States had attempted to prohibit kale, we would have just given up on kale. There, there wouldn't be any. No, no one was gonna fight that hard uh, for it. So uh, it's it's heartening and and fascinating to see how this plays out in different parts of the world. And something that really struck me in your writing on this is two different distinctions um, existing in post-revolutionary Iran around cannabis. One a distinction between hashish and flour um, socially and how those are, uh, who's using them and why and, and, and how that's viewed. And then there are two different words that you introduce um, to describe different aspects of being high or of consuming cannabis. So can you, can you help us understand those? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So to, to, to the first question between hashish and flour, so flour in Persian, the word that is used is gul, gul. And that's applied to flowers in general. But in, when you talk about cannabis, gul is the head, the tip of, of the plant and where it flowers. And so nowadays, if you say gul, people will kind of sort of play with that word, of course. But it's a recent development, the fact that People have started to smoke the flower, you know, like, uh, and uh, and that emerged out of a very importing of uh, North American cannabis culture into Iran. The reason why I say so is that, of course, people probably used the flowers before as well, but never in a systematic way. And generally, if you were interested in cannabis, that was hashish, always, always, always. But sociologically the groups that smoke initially smoked flowers were those who were ex more exposed to western culture and so we're talking middle class upper classes who traveled to, to 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 the west mostly and of course when they came back you know this kind of mixing of practices and the ways we do things affected also the kind of consumption and it's very interesting because the flower is much more expensive than hashish and th there is no economic reason why that should be, because, of course, uh, the flowers are usually uh, produced locally uh, in, in Iran, usually, you know, it's in not far away from where you buy them or, or into the main metropolis. Whereas hashish is usually imported from Afghanistan. And therefore, because it's imported from Afghanistan, it is usually purchased in dollars. Whereas locally, you would use the local currency, which is the weakest worldwide at the moment due to American sanctions. So the price is, is justified on sociological terms, the fact that the upper classes can consume flowers. And so it's kind of a sign of your status. So that made me really surprised because, you know, I would say, you know, the simplest kind of product should cost less and it's locally available compared to something you import and there's some manufacturing in it as well. To go to the second question about the two types of being high, I would say. Uh, nashegi and cheti. That's, these are the words. Nashegi is when you stoned, which is interesting because there's a, there's a medieval poem in which uh, the poet says, don't be confused by the herb 
as if you've been stoned, stoned with a stone in your head. And, and, and I wondered whether that kind of uh, reference actually informed our use of the word stoned today. I don't know the answer, but that kind of made me made me think about. But uh, so the sort of Nashigi is, is, especially in reference to hashish, is the sense, this, this, the feeling of being stoned, of being very slow, of wanting to stay in your, put in your place and kind of relaxing mostly and don't engaging into sort of mental efforts generally, uh, just following the flow. Sort of. Whereas Chetty, it's it's the high in the sense of uh, being focused on something. So when you get chat on something, it means you get fixated. Of course, something that happens, especially if you smoke weed, strong weed, you know, they kind of go in a loop on, on a task and you, you kind of lose the flow of time and you kind of do that thing obsessively a bit, you know, and sometimes it turns out very nicely because you're obsessing on, on an issue. So that kind of, these kind of two are, like, what is interesting is, of course, they exist everywhere in the world, but do they exist in different knowledge categories? <laughs> is it, do, do people actually express certain types of views consciously? That kind of interested me. It's because Hughes has actually made reference to these two for different purposes in different times of the day, in different you know tasks and so on and so in interactions with people. In a way, I found it very banal. It's something that most people who engage in these kind of things know, but also very sophisticated because uh, it was conscious and it was taught and and reflexive as well of the of your own kind of way of being in the world. Yeah, that's fascinating, and I I think that's a distinction that. We have socially and linguistically here in the United States as well. And, and as, we, as we wrap up this really fascinating, uh, from my perspective, conversation, I, I, I want to say thank you, of course, for all of the, the work that you've done and for talking with us. You know, there's, there's a phrase uh, really from the, from the Rastafari faith that the uh, cannabis is the healing of the nations, that the idea that this plant inherently has some ability to bring people together across different divides and healing in this sense, I think not just physically, but sociologically, politically, that, you know, we would all be better off to have a broader cultural understanding and to embrace this plant. And I'm wondering if somebody from outside Iran is fortunate enough to be able to visit today, is this cannabis culture something that would be safe to explore and experience or is it something that really exists locally and you would be ill-advised to try to seek out cannabis? And, and what do we know about sort of the price and availability of cannabis in Iran today? I would be very surprised that uh, any person who is interested in, in cannabis and travels to Iran comes back without having being in touch with cannabis. I mean, you know, it's, 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 I would say it's relatively impossible. Uh, you got to be really unlucky for that to happen. So, yeah, no, it's not something underground is kind of in your face, especially if you interact with, you know, well, not only young people, really. You just have to mention it. You just have to mention it. 
or they look at you and they say, are you, you smoker? A smoker? <laughs> okay, that's it. You know that there's this thing that people kind of understand just by looking. Uh, that's the kind of what we say, you know, you just have a look and if, if you and the other person are both on the same side of this issue and then you, there's no need for words. As for uh, the question of pricing of eligibility, you know, I wonder... I mean, I expect that people who travel from Europe to Iran or the West in general go with foreign currencies. And given the state of the Iranian economy at the moment, unfortunately and tragically, you'd find it very, very affordable. Our prices are extremely low and cannabis in particular in whatever form. Hashish is really, really, really low. I mean, like I wouldn't be able even to convert at the moment, but, you know, less than a packet of cigarettes like you would get. Uh, a, a large piece. Given the conditions at the moment in political repression that exists, these issues, one should not be superficial. I mean, smoking cannabis or any other substance could get you into trouble because it's a very easy way to accuse someone of something that legally is uh, is seen as highly problematic, not in practice, but legally. And so that's why you have the, the nature of the law that is still very repressive, because it can be used in specific conditions and situations to, to repress and punish uh, categories or individuals that kind of, uh, you know, are problematic. Foreigners being in Iran at the moment and being caught using, if there is a reason to kind of put pressure on a certain country or, you know, to kind of negotiate some Iranians that have been, have ended up in prison, for instance, in the West, which, you know, there are some as well in similar sort of geopolitically murky situations could happen. So, so yeah, that kind of the more, the more sort of vigilant advice <laughs> that I would give. Yeah. Well, that sounds like very sound advice and I appreciate you sharing it with us. I think that we can hopefully look forward to and work for a world. You know, this podcast is, uh, I feel blessed that um, people from all over the world do listen to this show, um, including in places uh, where cannabis is very severely prohibited, in places such as Iran and throughout the Middle East, where cannabis culture dates back hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And I think we just all need to look forward to and work towards a world where the cross-cultural understanding that this plant provides us, you know, that sense that you described, we call that Jadar, when you feel that yeah. you can look at another person like a joint is a J. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. where where that That's feeling <laughs> can guide us, and I think that we as a planet and as the people who live on it would be much better served to go forward based on our commonalities and not our differences. And one of those big commonalities is that people all across time and all across the world have found the value in this plant. Um, I found great value in our conversation today. I, I really appreciate you coming on uh, Great Moments in Weed History and sharing uh, this story with us. Pleasure to talk to you. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at Great Moments in Weed History dot com 
And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.